This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Levy Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the program, we'll welcome back guest entomologist Aubrey Harrison. Uh, they autom- um, Entomologists study insects, but we're not going to be talking about ladybugs and caterpillars, the types of insects you find in your backyard. We're talking about the crawling and flying insects that call the freshwaters of Mississippi home. Some of them spend their entire life in the water, while others are predator rather than prey. So if you've ever wanted to know the reasons that bugs are good for your lakes, ponds, and streams, stay tuned. Also, if you have a pet question for Dr. Major, he's here ready to give you an answer. So join the conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. or you can email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that uh, if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. Good morning. Good, good morning. Looks like we're in for a couple more days of rain. And this is interesting because, you know, sometimes it's raining in some parts of the state and in others. But I believe that uh, the entire state of Mississippi has gotten quite soggy here. And, boy, it sure has been in raining a lot here late, lately. So um, it's interesting. I think uh, sometimes we talk about how animals cope with that and to, you know because uh what's always interesting to me is say along the you know we're located near the banks of the pearl river not too far from and it's always interesting to me to area that's dry some of the times but then when there's a lot of rain and the the level of the river rises that's underwater and it would be interesting to see you know how how those creatures adapt and speaking of water today we're going to be talking about insects who spend part of and all of their life underwater so if you have a question you can give us a call the number is 1877 MPB ring it's 1877 672 7464 so Libby you've always got some good events to tell us about yes let, um I'll start on the gulf coast saturday february the 23rd i think the 23rd is saturday right I believe that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, Fountain Blue Trail, they're going to have a birds and botany field trip. And Mark LaSalle's leading it, so I imagine there'll be some insect hunting as well because Mark's always good at telling you what all the insects are. Uh, it's a great pine savanna bayhead habitat. It'll start at 8.30, I mean at 8 o'clock on Saturday. It would be a good idea to go to, let's see, MS. Audubon.com, I think it is. Anyway, get Google the um, Mississippi Gulf Coast Audubon and go ahead and tell them that you're coming. Sometimes it's a good idea for them to know how many people are going to show up. And then again on the coast in Gulfport, Nancy Madden's going to lead a field trip at the uh, Clower Thornton Park. And Clower Thornton was a wonderful place to find migrating warblers back before Katrina. And enough time has passed and the habitat's grown up that they suspect it's going to be really good again this year. So Nancy's um, real expertise is birding by ear and so that'll be emphasized at this one if you want to start birding by ear or if you just need some practice she's a good person to go with and that will be march the second 
starting at 7.30 in the morning. And Audrey's just handed me. It's msaudubon.org. Not dot. Yes. ms.audubon.org. All right. Oh, oh, and then I got one more from Natural Science Museum. Oceanbound exhibit still going strong. A great, a great place for kids to go on a rainy weekend. You feel like you've gotten a little <laughs> outdoor experience, even when you're still indoors, and it gets them maybe with not quite so much screen time. So Oceanbound, there's a lot of activity going on in it, and um, the aquariums look wonderful. And then. March the 9th, so that's three weeks away on a Saturday, from 10 to 3 o'clock is Fossil Roadshow. So you'll ah. be dusting off the fossils or the things that you think might be fossils, yeah. and anything you found in a gravel pile is fair game. Take it up there in a shoebox, and somebody will tell you what it is and how old it is. That's always one of the big ones uh, each year for the yes. museum. So. Yes. Um, so uh, last week we talked about the Great Backyard Bird Count with our guest Joe McGee. Although it's over, apparently you still can enter data at the website birdcount.org. And I've got to enter mine. And I was walking through the park where I again heard these, uh, the southern chorus frog. But also was looking around because, you know, if I like to every once in a while I'll just stop and listen to all the different sights and sounds at a park. Uh, there's ducks there, geese there, and there's birds. But, but boy, there were and they were making a lot of noise. But I looked up and there they were way up there in the trees. So um, it's fun, but it's not, you know, I mean, it, uh, you can't just run out in the backyard and go one, two, three, four, five. You know, you've got you've got to put a little effort into it. Next so. step is for you to take, wear your binoculars when you walk in the park. I'm going to have to get a yeah, pair sure. that, you know. Because um, yeah, like I said, they were they were. It was just you know, great sound. And then I looked up there, and I'm like, man, they're they're way up there in those trees. So, yeah. uh, Doctor Major, we mentioned a couple of weeks through in, in February that February is National Pet Dental Health Month. Um, so, if you're trying to brush your pet's teeth, do you use kind of like a human toothbrush and toothpaste, or do they make special things for dogs and cats? They do. They do make special teeth toothpaste for dogs. Uh, I'm not so sure about cats as far as the cats being able to tolerate it. But as the dogs, some dogs, if you start early enough, will uh, actually like for you to. I, I like to start by saying massage the gum line with your fingers or with a gut piece of gauze. Start out with and then go to a toothbrush. I'd use a very soft toothbrush. They do make liver flavored. Uh, <laughs> Uh, chicken flavored uh, toothpaste. Try not to mix that up with yours, and uh, it probably probably would not be too good. But yes, you can you can brush brush your dog's teeth, and uh, I I've never tried to brush a cat's teeth to, to be honest with you, not while they were awake. And uh, I would say that some may let you do that, but they would be a rare cat. But it's good to help to stimulate the gum line. Uh, that's where most of our Activity starts as far as uh, tartar and plaque, and uh, it's it's good to be aware. I have so many people that come in and say, gosh, my dog's breath is knocking me down. <laughs> well, the reason probably in most cases, there's some teeth that are beginning to uh, decay, uh, to rot, and some of the mouths are quite atrocious, so you'd like to run, put gloves on before you open the, the dog or the cat's mouth. But anyway, uh, it is very important. Uh, dental uh, uh, issues can affect the heart, the liver, kidneys, and can just the general state of health. A lot of times the first thing you see 
that you wonder why your dog has stopped eating or your cat stopped eating. And there may be an abscess tooth or a tooth that's infected um, uh, around the gum line. So always be aware. Have your vet. Uh, I like to think that we could check teeth maybe twice a year and uh, just look. And that's a very good thing to do. There are probably about 50% of our dogs or cats are in need dental uh, for in need of dental work. So it's something that we neglect a lot of times. Yeah, could you imagine that? You get up in the morning, you get your toothpaste, you're ready for that minty <laughs> freshness, and all of a sudden it's liver. That would be quite a, a shock to you in the morning. Uh, one anecdotal thing, uh, you know, my cat uh, likes to scratch, as most cats do. In the uh, previous um, box springs I had, he'd loved to claw his <laughs> way around that, and it got to where it was pretty torn up. Well, I bought a new bed recently, and I was hoping that he wouldn't uh, attack it. Well, he hasn't, and one of th- one of the reasons why he hasn't, I think, is that uh, he now has two scratching posts. I got the just the little cheap kind that's basically the you know the cardboard, the corrugated cardboard. Uh, but he loves those, so I figure um, I might even get him another one. And I figure you know if I'm if you've got places to scratch all around the house, uh, maybe that will prevent him from yeah. scratching on the things he's not supposed to scratch. That's interesting. I you know trying to give plenty of places to scratch is important. Uh, I know I was talking to someone uh, this past week. And the cat was actually hiding toys, and cats have stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cat was hiding toys in the underside of the bed, bed springs, and there where they'd made a, <laughs> they'd made a little den. And they they do like to den up. They have that idea. So every once in a while, I'll be missing my biggest cat, and I have no idea where he is. He's got a special place somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he shows up. Yeah. But uh, they they do like, and they you, they'll pull out a toy. And they say that, that cats, did we talk about this last week? But anyway, the cats have a better memory as far as where their toys are than dogs. Now, mm. if a dog knocks a toy under the couch, it's not going to go get it, okay? It might look at it like that and go get you. But the cats know where their toys are, and uh, that's kind of interesting. I believe that, yeah. <coughs> yep. that but he, he loves, I mean, you know, he will just go after that uh, that cardboard <laughs> thing for, you know, a good long time. So, like I said, he seems to enjoy it, and it's and so far is helping uh, preserve my box spring. So we're both Great. happy for the time being. <laughs> hey, before our first break, uh, let's talk to our friend Sue in Beaumont. You're on the air with us, Sue. Go ahead. I'd like to tell you about a wildlife observation, if it's okay. Sure, go ahead. I was driving past a neighbor's house the other day, and <clears throat> you got to drop the phone. And um, I saw a buzzard sitting on top of her roof. All along the roof line, there were buzzards just sitting packed closely together from one end to the other. <laughs> and they looked—they were all facing the road, and they—they they looked as solemn and bee-eyed as a bunch <laughs> of judges about a pass down a sentence. You know, <laughs> they were real odd to look at. So. I, I, it's such an odd thing. I, I turned around, drove back to look and looked at them again. You know, but uh, the buzzards are interesting because I, I got thing I've never seen a buzzard in a nest raising young, and they're too big to get in the hole in a tree like an owl or something. Where did they nest? And, 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 and where do they yeah. do they what do they build a nest out of? You wouldn't think with that beak they have they could pick up anything to build I, a nest. I found two buzzard nests, and both of these were in a fallen treetop. Still had you know kind of dead leaves on it, and um, one was kind of close to our house, so it was low on the ground. And I've I've been told by other people that that's not uncommon at all. A, a heavy brush pile. 
uh, anything that they can protect the eggs and the babies and still be, you know, on the ground like that. So it, it was really cool. You could kind of sneak up on it and sit and watch with binoculars and see those white, fluffy babies. The babies are, are very strange looking. They've got they're covered uh, kind of a... They still had a lot of bare parts on their head, you know, bare skin, but then they um, had lots of fluffy white feathers. Real cool. Interesting. We have uh, a vulture that has nested for years in, a, in an old barn and just on the floor. And you'll see the eggs in there, and the eggs are quite large. And it's fun to go uh, look at the babies. And they will start hissing pretty early on at you uh, just as a defensive type thing. So, Sue, what, what is a group of vultures called that are sitting around a meal? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. They look like solemn judges to me. I don't know. Well, what is it? Well, they call it a wake. A wake, <laughs> a, a, a wake, a wake W-A-K-E, of, of vultures. So, anyway, they, they may have been waiting for some, some meal there at that house. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> hey, Sue, thank, thank you. Thanks for your call, Sue. Good to hear from you. Let's uh, take our first break this hour. When we get back, uh, we will invite... Uh, Entomologist uh, Audrey Harrison into the conversation. We'll be talking today about several different types of aquatic insects and their benefit to the environment. Also, if you have a pet question for Dr. Major, you can give us a call. The number is 1 MPB Ring. It's 1 672 7464 or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And today in studio, we have entomologist Audrey Harrison. She's going to be here to help us learn more about aquatic insects. You can join the conversation with a question or comment. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Got a couple calls on the line, but if we'll hold those for just a minute, we can chat with Audrey for just a few minutes. So first of all, Audrey, welcome back. Glad to have you on the show with us again. Thank you. Glad to be here. So the last time we had you on, you were talking about the monarch butterfly. Uh, If you would, uh, tell us again about your background. Sure. I am a research entomologist, and I work for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in Vicksburg. And there I primarily study rivers and streams and the insects that inhabit them. Um, But I also do some work with terrestrial insects, which is why I'm interested in the monarch butterfly. And just to give a little bit of an update about the monarch butterfly, the numbers of the wintering populations have just come in. So scientists go out during the winter when monarchs are congregated in small areas and they actually count them. Hmm. And so the last few years has been really dim. Um especially for um, the Mexico population. But this year in the Mexico, in the overwintering population in Mexico, the numbers were the highest that they have been since the 2006-2007 monarch season. So that was really encouraging. So any of you that have planted milkweed or... um, encouraged, you know, safe and and best management practices for uh, monarch habitat, you know, you could have had an impact on them. Now, there's another population, the Western North American population of monarchs that overwinters in California. And unfortunately, this year was the lowest 
number of monarchs overwintering in California on record. So I don't know all of the reasons why, um, but that was that was pretty pretty sad that that those numbers have to continue to decline. But good news in Mexico, and I got an email this morning from a tracking group that I follow, Journey North, and monarchs are already starting to leave Mexico headed north to see us in Mississippi. All right. Good news. Uh, So let's uh, um, pivot to aquatic insects. So when we talk about aquatic insects, maybe what are some common ones or ones that uh, people might recognize? Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, we heard from Dr. Doug Clark on this show about dragonflies and damselflies. And so those are really easily recognizable insects. Most people are familiar with them, especially in their adult forms that fly in the terrestrial environment. And they're pretty charismatic, but there are a lot of other aquatic insects as well. And um, and so when someone talks about aquatic insects, They are mainly talking about insects that spend all or part of their life in water. And most uh, insects, most aquatic insects occur in freshwater. There are very few insects that occur in marine habitats. There are a couple. There are some that can live on the backs of sea turtles or in estuaries, but primarily aquatic insects are limited to freshwater. But that includes rivers, streams, and standing water such as lakes, ponds, and swamps, and even puddles. Is there any thought as to why they prefer the freshwater? Well, there's a lot of debate on that, actually. And and it's not completely known Vast oceans don't um, have a lot of area for aquatic insects um, once they emerge to perch on or to, um, you know, find have a resting spot so that they can find a mate and then oviposit. There's also um, the issue of salinity or the salt content in the ocean. And some insects have a tolerance to salt water, but most of the time they live in freshwater that has a fairly low salt content. All right. So we'll continue our discussion with Audrey throughout the hour. Got some phone calls to get to. Let's start uh, with uh, David, who's called in uh, from Winston County this morning. David, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I have a two-part question. My wife and I have a uh, new puppy, about four and a half months old, German Shepherd. And we want to teach the dog to do a uh, uh, to respond to a few commands like sit, stay, calm, and things like that. And, you know, you can learn so much on the Internet now about almost any topic. We, we have uh, learned that uh, the best way to tra- train a puppy is using his favorite toy. And so we are doing that, but what I don't know is whether we teach him all of the commands that we want him to respond to kind of simultaneously, you know, like children go to school for a day and they have uh, arithmetic, reading, and social studies and all of those things, or do we limit it to teaching him one command at the time, and once he gets that one command kind of down, then we go to another one. The second part is how, how much time each day should we train the dog, so to speak? Good questions. Uh, First of all, I kind of like the idea of building 
on what the dog knows. In other words, once he gets sit, stay down, then go on to other commands. Uh, those are the two basic commands. And, of course, heal, uh, very important that the dog responds to heal. Now, I, toys are good. I, I usually use more like the treat method uh, when they've done good, small treat, not a big treat, a little treat. And probably in a puppy this age, you can go for 30 minutes or so with the training. Uh, they're going to get bored after a while. And it sounds like you're doing a great job, but just I, I would suggest building uh, in steps rather than trying to do too much at once. All right, David, we appreciate your call. Let's move on. Next, we've got uh, Lauren, who's on the line from Corinth. Lauren, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Hi. Hi. I have a question for Dr. Harrison about aquatic insects. Okay, go ahead. Um, what do they eat? Well, that's an excellent question. Aquatic insects are um, in a variety of different behavioral feeding groups. There are some aquatic insects that are decomposers of uh, vegetation and other material. There are some that f- that filter suspended water uh, suspended particles in the water. There are some that shred leaf material and there are some that are predators. And so um, there's just a variety of, of different feeding types. So for the predators, dragonflies and damselflies are predators, Dobson flies are predators. They're like the tigers or the lions of, of water bodies. There are predaceous water beetles. Um, and there are predaceous mayflies, and even some of the true bugs are predaceous. And those all feed in a variety of different ways. Some of them pierce their prey and inject a, a solution that decomposes the bodies, and then they'll suck it back up, which is kind of cool to think about. Um, some of them are sit-and-wait predators. Dragonflies and damselflies are sit-and-wait predator, predators, so they sit there very stealthy and hide, and then they ambush their prey, which can be other insects, small fish, um, even, and they can even be cannibalistic and eat other damselflies and dragonflies. Um, and, and then for the shredders, it's really, that's really interesting to me because we, we know that in the fall, especially here in Mississippi, we have a lot of deciduous forests and every year they drop their leaves, the trees drop their leaves and those leaves somehow enter our water bodies. But when we go to the ocean, we don't really think about seeing leaves everywhere. So what happens to all of that leaf material and all of the woody debris and that sort of thing in the fall whenever things, uh, whenever the leaves drop? And a lot of that is actually processed in the rivers and streams by the aquatic insects and, uh, and some microorganisms. And they all work together to break down that material and process it, which is an ecosystem service for us because they turn that material into smaller pieces. They incorporate it into their body. Um, and then they actually, when they emerge out of the water as terrestrial adult insects, they are transferring all of that, all of those nutrients and all of those particles back into the terrestrial environment. So they, they really are important um, ecologically for processing nutrients. And um, the same thing with things that filter particles out of the water. A lot of different algae and microorganisms and all sorts of different particles are, are mixed in with our water all the time. And there are insects that are specialists at 
filtering out those particles through different hairs on their body or through different filtering fans that they have attached to their heads. And then they eat those particles. And then when they emerge as terrestrial adult insects from the water, they are transferring that into the terrestrial ecosystem where they might be eaten by a bat or a bird or another animal, or they may die and decompose in the terrestrial environment. So really, really important in nutrient cycles and in food webs. All right, Lauren, appreciate your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Uh, next on the line, our friend Kathleen is called in from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Well, good morning. Uh, rainy morning on top of all that. Um, I've been hearing a lot of the frogs and stuff outside, so I've been enjoying my outside, even though I just have the windows open. It makes for a nice evening. Uh, I have a question for Dr. Troy, though. This is this problem's driving me crazy. Got one cat. Got mad at me because I wouldn't let her scratch up my tablecloth. So every time I go in and out my upstairs bedroom, she leaves me a little present on the doorstep. Not a pleasant present. Okay. I don't know how to stop her. I've sprayed and talked to, cajoled, just, it's nothing. Wow. <clears throat> and they can't hold grudges, I believe that. And uh sounds like you made her pretty upset when you uh, started this problem. Is there a possibility of putting a litter box right there, not on the stairs, but close by? Got it. I even took a cardboard box <laughs> and split the top lid three ways around so it would be like a flap, mm-hmm. and I put a towel like a bank, I call them bankies, a uh, bankie in there for her, and she'll call in there and sleep, and when she wakes up, look out. <laughs> well. That's a good, good question. Maybe some other listeners could have some something that they could add to that. There are some sprays that you might be able to get online that uh, would deter that, but I'm not real, real fond of those. Uh, I would say the other thing, a couple of other things come to mind. They do make a scat mat, uh, which gives a little tiny electrical charge uh, if you put it put it down. That's usually not too desirable because she probably would move to a different step. But uh, well, I'd probably step on it. <laughs> well, probably, probably if you were barefooted, it probably would let you know. Uh, and you know, you could also just really put some toys, this sort of thing, try to distract her from there. But then again, if you're like me, you might trip on them. So you have to be careful. I wish I had better advice for you, but uh, someone, some listener might have a good good thing to ask, add to this. Okay? Or right. do you just give her the tablecloth? <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Kathleen, thanks for your call. Thanks, Kathleen. The one other thing I've heard, too, is that the smell. So in, to make sure that the after you clean up after the cat, to maybe have some sort of you know, uh, clean, cleansing thing because I've heard that the cat smells. You know that he thinks he or she thinks that's a, a good place uh, to go. You yeah. know, do it's their not, business. It sounds pretty it much like a vendetta, I would, <laughs> I would think. And uh, there are things that are supposed to neutralize, uh, and they can be purchased neutralize uh, both urine and stool odor. So it might help. All right. Uh, we need to take a break. When we get back, we will continue our discussion with entomologist Audrey Harrison about aquatic insects. Also, uh, we've got uh, Stanton on the line from Biloxi who has an interesting story about buzzards for us. Stanton, thanks for holding. We'll get to your call after this break. 
You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more, so stay tuned. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest today in studio is entomologist Audrey Harrison. We're talking about aquatic insects, but also looking for your questions about insects and pet questions and uh, observations about wildlife. Give us a call if you want to join our conversation. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. More with Audrey in just a minute, but we do have Stanton on the line from Biloxi that I think has a story for us. Good morning, Stanton. Thanks for holding. You're on the air with us. Good morning. How y'all doing? Doing good. Uh, I'm a, t- a turkey hunter, and I've, I've hunted turkeys up in Topaya County for probably over 30 years, and we had an old broke-down cabin on our property that had an open window on it that a buzzard uh, roosted in and built nest in for four or five years right inside the windows, or right inside the window. It was probably about the size, the circumference of a a bushel basket, made out of pine straw, and he or she'd usually have one or two eggs. But the, the funny thing about the buzzard was that every morning, just as dawn would crack, it would jump on the windowsill, and then it would jump on the roof. And the roof was loose. It was a tin roof, and it would create a huge racket. And my son was about probably six, seven, eight at the time, and it would scare him to death every morning. And, and I finally told him, I said, Stanton, that bird is a creature of habit. He's going to do that every morning. So there's no use to be afraid. But we watched those buzzards for years, and it seemed like almost as soon as they hatched that, that they were gone from the nest, that they, they went off and went about their lives. But that's what I can tell you about where buzzards nest. All right. Stanton, thanks for the phone call. Thanks for calling in. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Do we know there are uh, buzzards? Do they tend to go out on their own early on like that? I don't know. That's a, I'm, In fact, I've written myself a note to go home and do a little <laughs> yeah. reading about buzzards. We they, need to do a buzzard show. I'm not sure the exact time sequence, but they, they do need a little time before they can fly. You know, you've seen the ones that are downy white. They really mm-hmm. kind of yeah. pretty at that age. Yeah, I've not heard but of. Any, I, su- I suspect no. that uh, in reality, the ones that I've known probably it's taken several weeks before they can mm-hmm. leave. And I would imagine that they they're um, keeping those babies concealed probably yeah. pretty well. So by mm-hmm. the time you're starting to notice them, they're starting to fledge, is what I would right. think. But I don't know how long that is. <laughs> but we can find out. Uh, yeah, I'll All do right. some reading. 
Our, our guest today is entomologist Audrey Harrison. We're talking about aquatic insects. Audrey, we've talked about the idea that uh, some of these insects are food for other creatures, and you mentioned how they are filters, uh, so uh, they break down and, and filter out a lot of things in our rivers and streams. Also, though, they do they serve as biological indicators, and, and, and what's the relationship there? They do, and that's a really important part of aquatic entomology, especially as a field and as a career. Aquatic insects can serve as bioindicators of water quality, and that is because different aquatic insects are very particular about what types of habitats they live in. Some aquatic insects only live in standing water. Uh, some aquatic insects only live in flowing water. Some can tolerate various levels of pollution depending on how they breathe. If if they breathe, if they don't have to rely on clean water and oxygen within the water, then they can live in more polluted water bodies. And if you are if you are surveying a water body and you find a lot of things that can tolerate polluted waters and you find no insects that are sensitive to to any type of contaminants in the water, then you can be pretty sure that you have a problem with your water quality. On the other hand, there are a lot of insects that are only found in very pristine conditions. Um, these are mainly within three different groups of aquatic insects, the mayflies, the stoneflies, and the caddisflies, and um, which includes my favorite group of insects, the stoneflies. And these three, they're called the EPT insects, um, and that's just the first the first letter of their order name: Ephemeroptera, Plecoptera, and Trichoptera. And um, large concentrations of those three groups tell you that your water quality is good, that your water is clean, that the, the, that, that ecosystem is functioning in the way that it should because those are very sensitive to changes in water quality and also changes to their physical environment. So if you, if you have a stream, that's what you want to see. You want to see the mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies in your stream. All right, so I think most people uh, would recognize uh, a dragonfly. Would these other groups of insects, were, were there something that we would maybe recognize as seeing around our streams and rivers, ponds, lakes? Well, some of them you would. A lot of aquatic insects, when they do emerge out of the water into the terrestrial environment, they are attracted to lights. And so if you happen to have a light on in the summer, which is in the late spring and summer is when most of the aquatic insects emerge into adult forms and they are winged and they're flying around, they're often attracted to light. So if you're running a light or if you have a porch light or something and you go out in the summer and look at your light, you would almost certainly, if you were within any proximity to a water body, you would see some aquatic insects. And um, and so some of them are very showy. I mentioned the lions and tigers of the streams, the Dobson flies. Um, the larvae of Dobson flies are called Helgrima. 
mites, and they look very different from the adults, but the adults are spectacular. They're really big. They can be, you know, three and a half, four inches long. The males have really large mandibles, and so they look like they would just attack you, which they want. <laughs> they're pretty much harmless. Um, but they, they're very easy to recognize, so I encourage you to look those up and look at photographs of those. Mayflies... Um, a lot of mayflies emerge in large numbers. So if you live anywhere near the reservoir, you're probably familiar with mayflies, particularly burrowing mayflies. Um, there's a group called that are in the genus Hexagenia that emerge in lakes and reservoirs in mass. And that is a tactic that they use to avoid predation, but also to find a mate. And it's just part of their life history. So they can be a nuisance. Um, during a very short period of time, but they're really, really important um, in the ecological function of, of lakes and rivers. They are filterers. They burrow down into the sediment, and they create these little burrows that they filter water in and out of. And so they clean up the reservoir, and they clean up our rivers and streams. So they're very important, even if they're a little bit of a nuisance during their emergence period. And they're fish food and oh, yes. bird they, food. They come out just as the, the um, migrating songbirds mm-hmm. need a quick bite, and there they are. Yes. Full of protein. Absolutely. <laughs> they really are. And fish rely, a lot of fish species rely solely on aquatic insects, um, on the larvae of aquatic insects for their food. So if you don't have water that can sustain those aquatic insects, your food, your fish are not going to have the food that they need as well. And a lot of those fish include species that that you guys like to catch when you go fishing, um, sunfish or brim and bass and catfish and other, other recreationally important species rely on aquatic insects for their food. All right. <clears throat> Let's get one more call in before our next break. And it is uh, Shelby, who's called in from Ridgeland today. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yeah, a quick question. What's the difference between a buzzard and a vulture? Okay. That's a great question. Uh, yeah, maybe? yeah, what we're talking about are actually vultures. vultures that's There's right. an old word, world buzzard that's a different bird. But what we really are talking about or vultures, and buzzard would be a common name or a colloquial name for I think it's, I think it's southern. Yeah. Southern. Mm-hmm. southern name probably, but yes, they are vultures. And the uh, buzzards belong to a different uh, class, actually. It's B-U-T-E-O-B-U-T-O. Is that how you pronounce mm, I it? I think so, yeah. And, yeah. and the hawks are groups of that family. And uh, then there's a lot of old world type uh, hawks and this sort of thing. Uh it's kind of, it is unusual, but we all say we always have always said buzzard. There's a buzzard rather than there's a. Now we might say there's a tuck, turkey vulture or something like that. Yeah, and we do but, have a turkey vulture right. and a black vulture, right. which are, are they they look different. Um, it, that's a kind of an easy one to learn the difference between and. It's, it's a, a good thing okay. to look yeah. up and then it you'll is. know one and more thing when you get kids. out there. Yes, we, we, to know the difference. Yeah, we, we use the term. A little while ago about a wake, a group of uh, vultures around the carcass that they're eating. What is just a group of vultures called? I think I've heard this one, but I can't. uh... It's a committee. A committee. (laughs) (laughs) Or or like the hawks, they also fare up in the air called a kettle. All right. 
a committee. That's very diplomatic. <laughs> yeah. And who was it, Sue? We, maybe a, a bench of judges. Thanks for the call, Shelby. We need to take one final break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with entomologist Audrey Harrison. She's our guest this morning, and we've been talking about aquatic insects. Dr. Major's still here, ready to take a pet question or two as well. Wrap up the show after this, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And today our guest in studio is entomologist Audrey Harrison. We're talking about aquatic insects. Still about uh, eight minutes left in the show. Quickly, you could work in another phone call at one eight seven seven mpb ring which is one 672 7464. You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, um, Audrey, if you've sparked someone's interest in aquatic insects, what would be maybe a good online resource for learning more about them? Well, I think that there are several. For insects in general, I highly recommend the site bugguide.net. There are a lot of professional and amateur entomologists that contribute to that site, and they have lots of pictures, and um, you can submit pictures for identification if you have an insect that you have photographed and you're curious about what it is. Bugguide.net is is a really good one. Um, There are several good books um, that that deal with different aquatic insects. Um, Some of those deal with fly fishing. Some of the best aquatic entomologists are fly fishermen. Um, They rely on different aquatic insects to know which types of flies to use for their um, for their lures and that depends on what is emerging at what time and and what the fish would be feeding on at particular times so any kind of book on fly fishing or fly uh, ties are good there's one in particular that um, is written by a Clinton Mississippi native or local Dr. Bill Stark has written um, a coffee table book on aquatic insects and 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 stone flies in particular and and that one is a really good one. Lots of very good pictures in there. All right. Uh, back to the phone lines we go. We invite Jacob in from Oxford on the line. Good morning, Jacob. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Good. Um, I just had, a, just had a quick question. I saw a news article um, beginning of this week, maybe in the last week. I don't remember. But it's some kind of report about um, that insect biomass has been falling by like 2.5% every year or something like that globally. Um, and I just wondered if y'all had, you know, any information about that or any thoughts on what that means for the ecosystem um, and, you know, what if there's anything we can do to keep that from happening. That's actually a really, really important question. And I have read similar articles recently Um I read an article from the New York Times uh, about the insect apocalypse recently, and it's very frightening, and it should be frightening to everyone. And in that article, they talked about the windshield phenomenon because a dad noticed that his son wasn't having to close his mouth while he was riding his bike. And the dad remembered as a child, when he would ride his bike, he would have to close his mouth or he would get a mouthful of insects while he rode. And um, and so people have been kind of noticing over the last few decades that the numbers of insects on their windshields and on their car bumpers has been in decline. And um, and that has led to 
um, people researching the global declines of insect biomass. And um, I think most of that is probably related to changes in habitat, um, but also the widespread use of different herbicides and different pesticides. You know, we, we fly planes that just drop herbicides that kill the plants that insects rely on, and we we use pesticides pretty widely, and, and that has broad impacts. You may be killing more things than you're trying to kill by using certain chemicals um, because they don't necessarily target a specific group. So um, it's very alarming because because insects play a very important role in the function of our whole planet. And while insects could live forever without us, we can't live without insects. All right, uh, Jacob, uh, thanks for your call. Is there anything that the average person can do to promote uh, the insect population? Well, leaving wild spaces is my biggest recommendation. Just, you know, limiting the amount of your yard that you mow, you will notice a huge difference if you just walk out into an unmowed area of your yard versus a well-kept lawn, just the difference in the sounds that you hear. If you leave wild spaces and plant native plants, um, and, and you know, limit your use of any sorts of, of chemicals, you will notice big differences in the numbers of insects and the different types of insects that are able to live um, alongside you. Okay. One final call this hour, and it goes to Molly in Corinth. Molly, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi. I believe the caller before me had the exact same question, but I actually have a backup. Okay. Um, so <laughs> if, you know, if we are recognizing how um, important the insects are for fish. Um, but on sort of on the flip side, is, is it possible could overfishing influence the insect habitat? Well, that's a really good question. And I guess I haven't, um, haven't really thought about that. Overfishing um, could cause, you know, breakouts of certain insects that, that fish, you know, can consume. But um, insects are pretty, they're pretty, they can be pretty, pretty dominant um, and pretty abundant in particular habitats. So I guess it depends on the fish and, um, and what you, what, you know, function you're removing whenever you remove that fish. But absolutely, it could affect the insect population. All right, Molly, we appreciate that call. Uh, we've got a, about a minute or so left. Another uh, interesting uh, news story, then I'll summarize it quickly and just get some, some reactions. Uh, scientists in Italy have launched a major new phase in a testing of a controversial genetically modified organism, a mosquito designed to quickly spread a genetic mutation lethal to its own species. For the first time, they've begun large-scale releases of the endangered insects into a high-security laboratory. Interesting story on NPR about this uh, the other day. Uh, Audrey, do you have any thoughts about genetically modified insects to try to control the mosquito population? Um, I heard that story yesterday on my drive into work, and it's it's very scary to me, actually. Um, I, you know, malaria is a huge, huge problem for the human population, but I think that it is. I think that people should be scared when you talk about removing or altering a whole group of insects, um, removing them from the environment or changing their genetics. I think that um, previous previous um, 
experiments like this have backfired and could backfire. And, um, and mosquitoes are, can be a problem and are a problem. But um, they're also critical parts of our ecosystem. And, um, and they play big roles in food webs and in our water quality. And so removing them might have some effects that we don't anticipate. And so, to me, it's, it's a scary use of technology. And I guess the one that comes to mind that didn't work out the way they intended it to would be the Africanized honeybee. That uh, certainly was not, I don't think, the, the, uh, the, the outcome that people were, were hoping for. You don't always get what you want. <laughs> That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, one way to do it is to go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Audrey Harrison, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next at 10. It's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.